Welcome. You're on Deep Background. I'm Scott Cannon from the Kansas City Star. This is our newsroom podcast. I'm joined today by Diane Stafford. Hey, Diane. How are you, Scott? Great. And Dave Helling from the editorial board. Great to be here. Great to be here. Uh, We're going to talk about a couple of things. Uh, One that we tried to address last week, but got lost to technical difficulties. We'll get the end of the show talking about James B. Nutter Sr. and Neil Patterson's death. But before that, I want to talk about some of this uh, housing development that's coming up in somewhat unusual or unexpected places and kind of organically, right, Diane? Talk to us about what's happening in the West Bottoms first, maybe. In general, there's a lot of interest in moving back into the core of the city. You can remember just a few years ago, we were talking about, oh my gosh, you can't be a suburb of nothing, and there was all this wailing about the hollowing out of the city. And now there's a great interest in downtown, Westport, the West Bottoms, not just for cheap Um, loft-type living for the artsy types, but for families. And so there are quite a few developers that are capitalizing on the trend. They are rehabbing old buildings, and they're also building new. And talk particular, there's now we should think of the West Bottoms in terms of maybe two distinct areas within that area. Mm Bill Haw, who has owned the Livestock Exchange building in the heart of the historic Stockyard District forever, is a big advocate for building a community that families will want to live in. For most people, we know it as the area around Kemper Arena now. Um, If that plan goes through to turn Kemper into Mosaic Arena, which is going to be like a 24-hour fitness center and family activity center, Bill thinks that this will be a great excuse to build more housing. In fact, he's teamed with Flaherty and Collins, a national developer, to put in some new buildings for families. And uh, he generally thinks that the part of what we've always called the West Bottoms, that south of 670, should be renamed the Stockyards district, claim its heritage, but aim for a slightly different vibe than the part of the West Bottoms that's north of 670. Can can we stay in the West Bottoms for a minute because before we talk about all this development all over the city, because I'm fascinated. I've always loved the West Bottoms. I've known Bill Hall forever. He's been trying to do something down Mm -hmm. there, as you know, Diane, forever. Um, And because it's such an important part of the city's heritage, it's kind of where everything began. Uh, and yet it is often forgotten, even when Kemper and the Royal were American Royal were doing what they do down there, it tends to be forgotten. But one of the things I've always heard about the problems with development in the bottoms is the lack of infrastructure, sewer and drainage and water and all that stuff, which was very old, and then the threat of floods. You know, you're just on the other side of the flood wall from the Missouri River, is it? How do uh, have those problems been solved, or are those still major hurdles for what Bill Hall wants to do? Now? Well, well, we'll see when we get the next hundred-year flood. But, <laughs> um, as you know, in 1951, that area was completely flooded, and that's when a lot of the businesses there evaporated. But there has been a lot of levee work along the Caw and the Missouri. This is the point of the city that is at the confluence of the Caw and the Missouri. Literally, so it that's is, where they come together. It is lowland. Um, and we have seen flooding. Um, there is a lot more infrastructure there now, though, especially since Kemper was built. And there's some really high-priced housing down there now, too. And you have to, but you have to, you have to solve those problems, don't you, Diane, to have any hope of doing something in the bottoms that involves families and long-term investments and 30-year mortgages. I mean, you can't. 
you know, when you get six inches of water down there after a heavy rain, that's potentially a problem if you're asking people to invest that kind of money. Well, I agree. And I guess we should have the uh, some kind of flood control analyst sitting here to tell us what are the possibilities. But I do know that Butler has chosen that to be their North America headquarters. And since they moved there, there hasn't been a problem. Um, there's other companies that are locating there. And as careful as businesses are to protect their infrastructure, you wouldn't be thinking that well, they're making that. bad decisions. I guess my point is that more broadly, and again, maybe you could talk about this a little bit, more broadly, there are now so many options for the kind of urban living that maybe you envision for the bottoms. I mean, you've got it in Crossroads. You've got it or will have. You have it in Westport. You have it downtown, certainly, with one light and two light. The city market is building apartments, apartments along the river near the Berkeley Riverfront Park. So... If you're going to do something in the West Bottoms, you not only have to solve that problem, it seems to me, but you also have to say or prove this is a better alternative than those other places if you want that kind of urban lifestyle. How, how does Bill Haw do that? I mean, you, that, that it just seems like a pretty high bar. It is a high bar, but there's also that pioneering spirit Which that, he has that created <laughs> the stockyards in the beginning. And I think people are... There are some people, not all of us, but a lot of people are actually gravitate to the new, the different, the first, the trendy, the groundbreaking. Um, those are the people that will find out whether this effort works or not. Yeah, yeah. But you know, what strikes me as interesting about this idea, too, is the, the idea of getting young families in there. I mean, you can see how the, the sort of artist bohemian crowd comes in and makes something out of a space and with duct tape and bailing wire or where the, uh, the, the, the empty nesters who have a little money can afford a, a, a spiffier loft. It's harder for me to picture, you know, a, a couple raising a couple of kids can, can afford the sort of rents that this would translate to. Do we, you know, the, the places that are renting down there now, I mean, start at 1600 a month and go right, up but from that, that high. That's only 11 units. That's a really okay. small little trendy but are we, So we're talking something, a we're, different scale of luxury? Right. We're talking market rate, which, uh, you know, for some people, market rate sounds like a lot when you start at maybe 900 a month and go to 2300 for a couple of bedrooms. What Bill Haw is saying is that he owns... Uh, a section of access to the car that's the only place in the city that you can actually walk down to the river unimpeded by big concrete barriers and things like that. So he thinks that's a great draw for people who have that kind of adventurous spirit that they want to be able to just walk down to the river where it's throw in a fishing line or a kayak, heaven help them. <laughs> but, um, especially if the mosaic arena goes through he really sees a draw there okay and interesting to me am i right we don't it's not a, the hand isn't out to taxpayers on this we're not looking for subsidies on the residential component right no no right. they're not asking for any subsidy which is interesting because so much of the the downtown revitalization over the last decade decade and a half mm -hmm. i keep waiting for somebody to come in just because it's commercially attractive. And now it appears we've got somebody who thinks maybe they can make a go of it. We have some of that in Westport and the River Market and uh, downtown and the crossroads. We may have a tipping point. Right, yeah. and that's the interesting thing to me is how do you 
how do you get to that tipping point? Because the best developments in Kansas City, in my view, have always been those sort of organic things that start with the artists and they're sort of poor and they're difficult. And then they get some momentum and really don't really depend too much on tax incentives. And then the big guys come in and they want abatements and all the other stuff. But how do you get a, an area to that tipping point fascinates me. I don't, I don't know how you do it. I mean, how, you know, the whole point of the West Bottoms is how do you get not just residences, but grocery stores, gas stations, restaurants, retail establishments to some degree. H- how do you get those people to come And you've seen that there? in the crossroads. Yes, and, they could, the and folks it's very organic, cross- isn't it? I mean, right. it's a very sort of nothing, nothing. Then all of a sudden, well, look, on this corner, here's a little office building, and here's a little artist space, and here's grinders or whatever it is. Yeah, you can't toss a rock without hitting a, a brew pub down there. Now. But, right. but sometimes it does take a civic push. If you think back to Midtown, when they created the what we used to call the Glover plan to get Costco and the grocery store there, there was a lot of incentive for Mac properties to come in and renovate some of the old buildings along Armour and Linwood to get residents there. Because if you don't have people to shop in the grocery store, any kind of civic push to rehabilitate an area is not going to work. So that, you know, that has happened in downtown. And now a lot of the people who oppose public incentives are looking at the crossroads especially and saying, we don't need to incent things there anymore. That's a hopping place. It's going to happen on its own. Right. And you could argue that the crossroads wouldn't be what the crossroads is today had not so much tax money poured into downtown just a few blocks to the right. north. Right. Which begs the question, Diane, how much of this is real and how much of it is a fad? I mean, how much do we do we, will we look back in 20 years and go, boy, we built all this space and now, and it was very popular, but suddenly the suburbs are attractive again. Do we have any sense of that at all, that, that maybe we're overbuilding, overcommitting, and not just downtown, or, but all of it? I mean, you've got Westport again, Crossroads, Riverfront, West Bottoms. At what, some point, well, the ability of people to move into these mm-hmm. places m- might... Right might start to dip One of the things that is interesting is local developers are getting to the place where they're saying, golly, I think we might be overbuilt. We might be putting in too many apartments. But the investors from outside that come from cities that have a stronger urban residential character, they're thinking the door is still wide open for more residential development. Maybe they are counting on the millennials after they get married and have their two kids not moving to the suburbs. Maybe they're counting on people going car-less. Um, but it, it does seem that a lot of the interest in continuing to develop comes from out-of-town investors. Yeah, that's, well, that's and the, there does seem to be a, a generational difference where, you know, uh, baby boomers want to own things. They want to build record collections, have a home, lawnmower, and that sort of thing. Millennials don't want that. They don't. They're not part of the car culture, for instance. Um, and so they might be that you, you talk about a fad. Dave, it may be a fad that that covers a generation. No though, question. That, that is enticed by and, and urban I, living. You know, and not you know, millennials want the experience of going down to the coffee shop in the morning and buying a bagel on a Saturday to a in a place where they can walk or maybe seeing a movie, which was the whole you know idea behind the Power and Light District. And you may be right; it may be a generational fad, but if it is, 
that means the city, it seems to me, are going to have is going to have to start making different choices or different assumptions about things like streetcars and mass transit and sidewalks and setbacks and zoning and and retail incentives that were typically aimed at sort of outer rings. And now, you know, cities have to start thinking 25 or 30 years into the future and not just planning. Well, and you can see, I'm not sure we're doing that, frankly, but. And you can see technology making a difference. So yes. if, if the, the suburbs were built on the car and the internet, interstate highway system, well, it, it's not unthinkable that 10 years from now, car ownership all but goes away. We all, you know, Uber or, uh, or hail a, a uh, self-driving right? car that we, we get from place to place. And so that, that all that leads to, well, maybe I'll stay closer in and, and be in these places where I, I mean, don't I've been the same a long, kind of space. I've been a long critic of the idea of building a baseball stadium downtown, which a lot of people are, are you know, support, because I just don't think that, that, frankly, sports facilities are that much of an incentive for development. And I think Kemper Arena actually proves that because Kemper was built and they expected all this stuff to happen in the bottoms, and it never did. But if you have a downtown with lots of people who live there and can walk to a stadium and or maybe take a streetcar or, or a quick, then that changes the calculus to me. Now you're not trying to draw people from all over the suburbs. You already have a built-in. And that so it seems to me what you're describing, again, not just the bottoms but across the city, should force a real re-examination of what the city does on things like transit, retail, and other and The school situation Schools. is the major thing to keep families in the midtown and downtown area. Fortunately, we are seeing some really good charters pop up and expand their grades to higher levels of education. Right. So, And residents you know, demand that, right? I do. mean, that's what that, they you start do. moving in, they've got kids, look, we want good schools, we want all these other things. Right, I mean, Johnson County was basically built on the failure of the Kansas City school system. So right, and a, if you can bring people back in from Johnson County to live downtown, maybe the schools will reflect that a little bit. It's a very holistic thing and interesting and really unexpected, I must say. I mean, I remember interviewing Bill Haw in the 80s about what his vision for the West Bottoms, and he's always been very optimistic about it. It never really happened, uh, and yet now it seems that it might be doing so. Can I let one final question before we turn the corner? What happens to the American Royal and all of this in the West Bottoms? I we mean, don't they're moving know. out, aren't they? Well, or they we don't move? know yet. The yeah. inclination is to move to Wyandotte County, but nothing has been signed, sealed, or delivered yet. And does that is that a critical component of what's happening here, or that's really so far south that it's not that big of a deal? Yeah. No, it does not affect this because... The American Royal populates that area a few weeks of right. the year. The rest of the time, those buildings mostly sit there. So it's not um, something that would make or break a 24-7 use of the Stockyards District. Yeah, yeah. great. And somewhere someone is mourning the loss of all those haunted houses that wants to find downtown. <laughs> well, and, of course, and that's, see, that is all north of 670. That's the old West Bottoms okay. that Bill Hall is perfectly happy to keep as the well, West I Bottoms. Well, again, with, I remember covering fire after fire in the West Bottoms. I mean, you, you know, you get 6-7 alarm. We haven't had that in a long time. Again, because I think people are living there, and you get rid of the transient population and some other things. It's just a fascinating, interesting development in Kansas City. Okay, and so we talk about where Kansas City's building today. Let's talk about two people had a, a big hand in, in building what Kansas City's been for the last several decades. Uh, maybe let's start with James B. Nutter Sr., who passed earlier this month. 
Dave, you crossed paths with him a lot in your career. Tell us who he was and why he made a difference. Well, he was a, as everyone has said since his passing, a larger-than-life figure in not in the history of the city and in the politics of the city. He was a mortgage banker. He made his millions and, and many millions in lending money to people for homes. Uh, but he did it in a, a different way. He tried to find at least in some degree, families that were marginal, that, that lived in you know, slightly less affluent areas of Kansas City, encouraged them to, to own homes. He was, uh, he was a visionary in that way, but he was also heavily involved in democratic politics, very liberal guy, and had lots of money to hand out. You had to go visit Mr. Nutter at the start of a campaign, at least until the last 10 years or so. His involvement really started to wane as he got older and a bit but always a proud limousine liberal, right? But a limousine liberal to beginning and end uh, and had the money to back it up. That was the important thing to remember that, you know, in Kansas City, a half million dollar contribution would, makes a hell of a difference. And uh, he would routinely write checks of that size and larger if he believed in an issue or a candidate. Now, big not, behind the careers of the Carnahan's, yes. Claire McCaskill. Emmanuel uh, Cleaver, Frank White ran for county executive this last time in large part at the encouragement of James B. Nutter Sr. So he even to the end, he kept his hand in. Now, not everybody liked his influence. Not everyone agreed with his stands on issues. I've said this in other places, but he was not a fan of light rail. He thought that was uh, not a good thing for Kansas City. Fixed rail was, and so he opposed it you know, with his checkbook. I mean, and that's, some people believe that's why we've had such a struggle in this community of ever approving light rail at the ballot. So he was not universally um, endorsed. He, he, he made some, not enemies, nobody was really an enemy of Jim Nutter, but not everyone agreed with him. Having said that, uh, he was the, easily the most influential Kansas Cityan who was not elected really in the last 50 years. One thing that always impressed me about Nutter was his ability to think beyond his own self-interest when people came and asked him to sign a check. One example I'm thinking of is when the City of Fountains was trying to fix a lot of the broken fountains in Kansas City, and he wrote a $300,000 check to fix a fountain near Swope Park. That's not his backyard, obviously, but he always seemed to look at the broad civic interest and not just the one little thing that he might be interested Interesting, in. That's right. Interestingly enough, though, he was not, no one would really consider him part of the sort of upper crust elite in, in, that, in that sort of society. He was not a, he stood outside of it a little bit. He wasn't in there with the halls and some of the, you know, the, even the Kaufmans to a degree. He was kind of an outsider. Uh, kind of a rumpled guy. Uh, he was accessible to the press and to the public. He didn't hide, as other members with a lot, you know, other people in Kansas City with a lot of wealth tend to do. Uh, Yet he, he was respected by them. It, you know, one of the last accolades was that he was given the uh, Kansas City of the Year right. Award by the Chamber. But he wasn't a part of that, Diane. No, I, I, but he they was, respected he, it. No question, but he stood outside it, which maybe was mm -hmm. part of his value in some degree, that he, A, had the resources, and B, could stand outside that conventional wisdom, if you will, among the upper crust in Kansas City that made him so valuable. And, Diane, Neil Patterson was a bit of an outsider did things in a different way, too, wouldn't you say? Uh, Neil Patterson, of course, was one of the three co-founders of Cerner, which Cerner has grown to be the largest private sector employer in Kansas City. So uh, his leadership 
shows a lot of power right there. When you are in charge of that many people's economic security in your city, that's a very powerful statement. But in terms of playing ball with the civic leadership, no, not necessarily. Uh, Much like Nutter in that Right. Way. Neil Patterson had his own um, interests, one of which was the American Royal. He was not a fan of the current leadership at Kansas City, Missouri City Hall, but he was um, doing very well with uh, Wyandotte County and Kansas City, Kansas. Right. And uh, talk a little bit. He, he saw the value of electronic medical records before most people did and, and charged at it in a way that, that created a success that one could hardly have imagined when, when they started with the late 70s. It was 38 years ago, and it's a very often told tale that he and two of his associates at Arthur Anderson, neither of the three were CPAs, so they're saying, you know, what's the future here? And they famously had lunch at a picnic table at Loose Park now and then and created the idea for Cerner. And it was exactly that. How do we use our knowledge about... Um, information technology and apply it to an industry that needs it most. And um, they did. It was Paul Gorup, Cliff Illig, and Neil Patterson, and they charged ahead with this idea of digitizing healthcare records. Right. And, I, you know, and I, I met him once for a rather lengthy interview, and it was, clearly he understood the, the business promise of this, but he also felt pretty sincerely that this was a path to better health, to better medical care, that if, if you're if, if all your doctors knew, had a better picture of your medical history and, and, and also that we could take big data from all of our medical histories mm -hmm. and begin to find the most cost-efficient solutions towards better health, that there was, that, that the world would be a better place through this business success, right? I think it started out as uh, cost control. You know, why do we have to repeat an x-ray eight times simply because you go to eight different specialists? Why can't they look at the same x-ray? There are a lot of reasons maybe why that doesn't happen yet. But I think over... <laughs> but needs to happen. <laughs> yeah, I think over time, he quickly realized that after you sell the equipment to all the doctors and all the hospitals so they can all look at each other's digitized records and it's an interoperable system across the healthcare landscape, he realized, okay, just like HMOs and everything else we've tried to do to control the increase in healthcare costs, oh my gosh, that's not happening, so what's next? And the next step for Cerner is the vision of tackling what they call population health. And that means let's share all this information as early as we can so that people, A, know what is their likelihood of getting sick, knowing the best practices to, to treat it, and then how do we keep them out of the emergency room? You know, How do we use all this collected data to make the populations healthier so they don't cost as much money. Right. And you, you're, you, we're on the cusp, not there quite yet, but of being able to do real serious medical research from your keyboard because you've got all this big data that you can plug in. Um, his politics were a little more to the right, certainly not in James Nutter's camp. Right. Um, a fan of Ayn Rand, sort of libertarianism, um, although, you know, his, in the early years of the Obama administration, got a big pump from the stimulus package that paid for so many doctors and hospitals to digitize their records. Yes, he was a Republican, and in fact, his wife, Jean, ran for office at one time on a Republican ticket. And he would give money time to time, but he wasn't, uh, that didn't seem to me to be a great focus of his life. 
Right, and I, I, well, let me just, because I think this is such a fascinating uh, point to make about Neil Patterson and James Nutter. Kansas City has, uh, from long experience, has this sort of what I call noblesse oblige among the wealthier civic council types where it's consensus, it's community beautiful, it's unity, it's support the earnings tax, all these other things. Neil Patterson stood far outside of that on the right. James Nutter stood far outside of that idea on the left. They had passions, political passions, to which they donated money and time and thought and really resisted the idea of sort of assimilating with the, with the hoi polloi. I, I'm struggling for the right word, but this idea of a consensus core of civic-minded leaders, both of them stood outside of that to pursue their own perceived political views and interests. I think that's so important in a community. I think it's so important to have people like Neil Patterson and Jim Nutter, who in essence poke the little stick at the, at the consensus in the middle and really, one tribute to Neil Patterson is what he's done in Western Wyandotte County, which you would have found very little support for among the civic council types uh, at one point. Nutterville, which is, you know, his own sort of tribute, is yeah. not the kind of thing that you would put in a city beautiful plan. And yet both are incredibly important contributions to this community, aren't well, don't you think, Diane? Neil and Cliff Illig together saved professional soccer in Kansas City. So that was a strong interest. And uh, yes, the whole community, not just talking about playing ball on one side of the state line or another, they did direct their wealth to a very important civic asset. Yeah. I, I, again, that proof of what of this theory that I've had, when the Royals went through their transition after Mr. Kaufman died, none of the usual noblesse oblige people stepped forward to buy the team. This isn't something we deal with. Baseball is too jejun for us or whatever, however you want to describe it. And yet, so someone from out of town had to sort of come in and do that. Neil Patterson did that with soccer. I mean, it, it really, you know, it's just so important to have the people on the left and the right to make sure the people in the middle keep their eyes on well, all the, the community and not just their own. The other thing to remember about building a company of the size of Cerner is the importance after the main figurehead is gone has there been a groundwork laid to keep that company going? You know, there's a lot of concern about what is the future of Cerner, and this is a very important discussion for Kansas City in terms of all the people who work there. And the stock price stumbled a little on but, staff, yeah, there's but been not seriously, right? And I think that that's because the investment community knows that there is a very strong management team at Cerner that's had a couple of years of grooming and stepping in for Neil when he was ill to uh, lead annual meetings, to uh, talk to investors in the earnings calls. And I don't think that um, the passing of one of the co-founders shook rafters. I, th I think that the investment community still has the same opinion of Cerner as it did before Neil died. Yeah. On the other hand, there is some precedent in Kansas City for companies that are 
presumed to be big presences to begin to shrink when the founder dies. And I think Marion Labs is the classic example of that. At one point, Marion was one of the biggest employers in town and developers and bought all that land out by Bannister Mall and did all those great things. And then as Mr. Kaufman got sicker and, and withdrew a little bit, it got sold and then resold and shrunk. And now it's not nearly the civic presence that it was even 20, 25 years ago, at least in my interpretation of it, something similar might. Sprint. Uh, Sprint is another example of a great c corporate presence that shrinks. That's not so much leader-based as it it's was. It's a little harder to imagine Cerner going away. withering away. In well, as, as he noted, look at the ownership. It, we have to watch, is Cerner going to be bought? <laughs> Right. Right. I mean, that's what, when the entrepreneur, the founder dies, that at least can be uh, the result. And it isn't just Kansas City. Budweiser, you know, in St. Louis was sold. I mean, great founding, iconic, identifiable businesses and communities, when the founders begin to step away a little bit, can be under some pressure. And it'll be fascinating to see if that happens with Cerner now that Mr. Patterson has passed on. Its presence now in Kansas City is undeniable. It's one of the, I think it is the biggest private employer in the metropolitan area. So its health is Kansas City's health in some ways. In some degree. On that note, and now that we've introduced the idea of the jejunness of baseball, <laughs> we'll wrap things up today. Thanks for being with us. You've been on Deep Background. <laughs>